Welcome back to the Hemingway list. We're talking about chapter 112 of Of Human Bondage, and Philip is walking down memory lane. Is he feeling sentimental or the opposite? Swim said the mum fish, he said neither. I think he is reflecting on his life thus far. What I appreciate most about this book is that we see actual growth in Philip. I liked this passage. He went to see the secretary of the medical school who asked him curiously what he had been doing. Philip's experiences had given him a certain confidence in himself and a different outlook upon many things. Such a question would have embarrassed him more. Sorry, would have embarrassed him before. Yeah, it was a funny chapter. He was being very nostalgic, sort of, like he, but then also not. That's why I asked that discussion from because like he got that letter from he found that letter from his mum to his uncle and read that but then felt like kind of I don't know, like not disgusted but very like turned off at the thought of it and he tore it up, I think. Or he felt like tearing it up. I'm not sure if he actually did. Um and then again he went and visited his old school and rather than feeling all sort of warm and fuzzy, he just felt kind of disgusted by it. Uh, I am Norwegian said this, I empathise with Philip, ruminating about a wasted youth. There's something about being growing up an awkward introvert that does that to you, but Philip seems to quickly recover and move past that. I've only been listening to the podcast for the past week or so, so I don't get as deep into the book, but it's nice, really nice, being able to multitask. I've been feeling very busy lately, I'm not. I spend hours every day lounging on YouTube or watching shows, but full-time work and a few hobbies make me feel much more rushed than I actually am. But it's still great being able to fire up, just fire up the podcast as I warm up in the gym or when I do my shopping, etc. I know that feeling of feeling busy, but really not being that busy, watching heaps of YouTube. I feel that. I feel that. Um, It's good that the podcast is, you know, I guess I designed the podcast so that you could just follow the subreddit purely via your podcasting app. You know, if you were pressed for time or you didn't have time to read the book, you could just participate in this whole thing just via the podcast. But really, you know, you can then add and supplement to that as much as you want by participating in the conversation or getting the book for real or whatever. So that's good to know that uh, as a standalone thing, the podcast works. Laura Weistich said this, but he's not even 30 yet. Um, oh, in regards to him ruminating about his wasted youth. A lot of people don't figure out what they're doing until at least that age. Yeah, I know. There was a funny bit in that chapter where he was sort of talking about how old he was and all the missed opportunities. And it's like, I'm pretty sure he's like 26 or something at this point. Um, but... I suppose I kind of remember feeling like that too when I was in my 20s. Like, you know, if you hadn't achieved something by 18 and been like the youngest guy to do this ever, then what's the point? You know, I don't want to just be a doctor. I want to be Doogie Hauser and be a doctor before I even graduate college. Uh, anyway, enough about Doogie Hauser. Let's read chapter 112, which goes like this. Josiah Graves, in his masterful way, made arrangements, becoming but economical for the funeral. Hey, wait, have we read this? What? I feel like I've already read that. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, I have already read that. 
I'm reading the wrong chapter. Um, chapter 113 is what we're reading. Okay. Let's have a little look here. Okay, 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 okay. Let me go again. Chapter 113 goes like this. At the beginning of the last week in August, Philip entered upon his duties in the district. They were arduous, for he had to attend, on an average, three confinements a day. The patient had obtained a card from the hospital some time before, and when her time came, it was taken to the porter by a messenger, generally a little girl, who was then sent across the road to the house in which Philip lodged. At night, the porter, who had a latch key himself, came over and awoke Philip. It was mysterious then to get up in the darkness and walk through the deserted streets of the south side. At those hours, it was generally the husband who brought the card. If there had been a number of babies before, he took it for the most part with surely indifference, surly indifference. But if newly married, he was nervous and then sometimes strove to allay his anxiety by getting drunk. Often there was a mile or more to walk, during which Philip and the messenger discussed the conditions of labour and the cost of living. Philip learned about the various trades which were practised on that side of the river. He inspired confidence in the people among whom he was thrown, and during the long hours that he waited in a stuffy room, the woman in labour, lying on a large bed that took up half of it, her mother and the midwife, talked to him as naturally as they talked to one another. The circumstances in which he had lived during the last two years had taught him several things about the life of the very poor, which it amused them to find he knew, and they were impressed because he had not deceived by he was not deceived by the little subterfuges. He was kind, and he had gentle hands, and he did not lose his temper. They were pleased because he was not above drinking a cup of tea with them, and when the dawn came, and they were still waiting, they offered him a slice of bread and dripping. He was not squeamish, and could eat most things now with a good appetite. Some of the houses he went to, in filthy courts off a dingy street, huddled against one another without light or air, were merely squalid. But others, unexpectedly, though dilapidated with worm-eaten floors and leaking roofs, had the grand air. You found in them oak balusters, exquisitely, ex exquisitively carved, and the walls had still their panelling. These were thickly inhabited. One family lived in each room, and in the daytime there was the incessant noise of children playing in the court. The old walls were the breeding place of vermin, the air was so foul that often feeling sick Philip had to light his pipe. The people who dwelt here lived from hand to mouth. Babies were unwelcome. The man received them with surly anger, the mother with despair. It was one more mouth to feed, and there was little enough wherewith to feed those already there. Philip often discerned the wish that the child might be born dead or might die quickly. He delivered one woman of twins, a source of humour, to the facetious, and when she was told, she burst into a long, shrill wail of misery. Her mother said outright, I don't know how they're going to feed them. Maybe the Lord will see fit to take them to himself, said the midwife. Philip caught sight of the husband's face as he looked at the tiny pair lying side by side, and there was a ferocious sullenness in it which startled him. He felt, in the family assembled there, a hideous resentment against those poor atoms who had come into the world unwished for, and he had a suspicion that if he did not speak firmly, an accident would occur. 
accidents occurred often, mothers overlay their babies, and perhaps errors of diet were not always the result of carelessness. I shall come every day, he said. I warn you that if anything happens to them, there will have to be an inquest. The father made no reply, but he gave Philip a scowl. There was murder in his soul. Bless their little arts, said the grandmother. What should happen to them? The great difficulty was to keep the mothers in bed for ten days, which was the minimum upon which the hospital practice insisted. It was awkward to look after the family. No one would see to the children without payment, and the husband tumbled because his tea was not right when he came home tired from his work and hungry. Philip had heard that the poor helped one another, but woman after woman <clears throat> complained to him that she could not get anyone in to clean up and see to the children's dinner without paying for the service, and she could not afford to pay. But listening to the women as they talked, and by chance remarks from which he could deduce much that was left unsaid, Philip learned how little there was in common between the poor and the classes above them. They did not envy their betters, for the life was too different, and they had an ideal of ease which made the existence of the middle classes seem formal and stiff. Moreover, they had a certain contempt for them because they were soft and did not work with their hands. <clears throat> the proud merely wished to be left alone, but the majority looked upon the well-to-do as people to be exploited. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> they knew what to say in order to get such advantages as the charitable put at their disposal, and they accepted benefits as the right which came to them from the folly of their superiors and their own astuteness. They bore the curate with contemptuous indifference, but the district visitor excited their bitter hatred. She came in and opened your windows without so much as a by your leave or with your leave, and me with my bronchitis enough to give me my death of cold. She poked her nose into corners, and if she didn't say the place was dirty, you saw what she thought right enough. And it's all very well for them as servants, but I'd like to see what she'd make of her room if she had four children and had to do the cooking and mend their clothes and wash them. Philip discovered that the greatest tragedy of life to these people was not separation or death that was natural, and the grief of it could be assuaged with tears, but loss of work. He saw a man come home one afternoon three days after his wife's confinement and tell her he had been dismissed. He was a builder, and at that time work was slack. He stated the fact and sat down to his tea. Oh, Jim, she said. The man ate stolidly some mess which had been stewing in a saucepan against his coming. He stared at his plate. His wife looked at him two or three times with little startled glances and then quite silently began to cry. The builder was an uncouth little fellow with a rough weather-beaten face and a long white scar on his forehead. He had large, stubbly hands. Presently he pushed aside his plate, as if he must get up, give up the effort to force himself to eat, and turned a fixed gaze out the window. The room was at the top of the house, at the back, and one saw nothing but sullen clouds. The silence seemed heavy with despair. Philip felt that there was nothing to be said. He could only go, and as he walked away wearily, for he had been up most of the night, his heart was filled with rage against the cruelty of the world. He knew the hopelessness of the search for work and the desolation which is harder to bear than hunger. He was thankful not to have to believe in God, Then, for then such a condition of things would be intolerable. 
One could reconcile oneself to existence only because it was meaningless. It seemed to Philip that the people who spent their time in helping the poorer classes erred because they sought to remedy things which would harass them if themselves had to endure them without thinking that they did not in the least disturb those who were used to them. The poor did not want large airy rooms. They suffered from cold, for their food was not nourishing and their circulation bad. Space gave them a feeling of chilliness, and they wanted to burn as little coal as need be. There was no hardship for several to sleep in one room. They preferred it. They were never alone for a moment from the time they were born to the time they died, and loneliness oppressed them. They enjoyed the promiscuity in which they dwelt, and the constant noise of their surroundings pressed upon their ears unnoticed. They did not feel the need to, of taking a bath constantly, and Philip often heard them speak with indignation of the necessity to do so with which they were faced on entering the hospital. He was both an affront and a discomfort. They wanted chiefly to be left alone. Then, if the man was in regular work, life went easily and was not without its pleasures. There was plenty of time for gossip, after the day's work, a glass of beer was very good to drink. The streets were a constant source of entertainment. If you wanted to read, there was Reynolds or the news of the world. But there you couldn't make out how the time did fly. The truth was that's a fact. You was a rare one for reading when you was a girl. But what, with one thing and another, you didn't get no time now, not even to read the paper. The usual practice was to pay three visits after a confinement, and one Sunday Philip went to a patient at the dinner hour. She was up for the first time. Couldn't stay in bed no longer, I really couldn't. I'm not one for idling, and it gives me the fidgets to be there and do nothing all day long. So I said to Herb, I'm just going to get up and cook your dinner for you. Herb was sitting at the table with his knife and fork already in his hands. He was a young man with an open face and blue eyes. He was earning good money, and as things went, the couple were in easy circumstances. They had only been married a few months, and were both delighted with the rosy boy who lay in the cradle at the foot of the bed. There was a savoury smell of beefsteak in the room, and Philip's eyes turned to the range. "'I was just going to dish up this in a minute,' said the woman. "'Fire away,' said Philip. "'I'll just have a look at the sun and air, and then I'll take myself off.' Husband and wife laughed at Philip's expression, and Herb Getting up, went over with Philip to the cradle. He looked at his baby proudly. Doesn't seem much wrong with him, does there, said Philip. He took up his hat, and by this time Herb's wife had dished up the beefsteak and put on the table a plate of green peas. You're going to have a nice dinner, smiled Philip. He's only in of a Sunday, and I'll, I like to have something special for him, so as he shall miss his own when he's out at work. I suppose you'd be above sitting down and having a bit of dinner with us, said Herb. Oh, Herb, said his wife, in a shocked tone. Not if you ask me, answered Philip, with his attractive smile. Well, that's what I call friendly. I knew he wouldn't take offence. Polly, just get another plate, my girl. Polly was flustered, and she thought Herb a regular caution. He never knew what ideas he'd get in his head next. But she got a plate and wiped it quickly with her apron, and then took a new knife and fork from the chest of drawers where her best cutlery rested among her best clothes. There was a jug of stout on the table, and Herb poured Philip out a glass. He wanted to give him the lion's share of the beefsteak, but Philip insisted that they should share alike. It was a sunny room with two windows that reached to the floor. 
It had been the parlour of a house which at one time was, if not fashionable, at least respectable. It might have been inhabited fifty years before by a well-to-do tradesman or an officer on half-pay. Herb had been a football player before he married and there were photographs on the wall of various teams in self-conscious attitudes with neatly plastered hair, the captain seated proudly in the middle holding a cup. There are other signs of prosperity, photographs of the relations of Herb and his wife in Sunday clothes, on the chimney piece an elaborate arrangement of shells stuck on a miniature rock, and on each side mugs, a present from Saland in Gothic letters, with pictures of a pier and a parade on them. Herb was something of a character. He was a non-union man and expressed himself with indignation at the efforts of the union to force him to join. The union wasn't no good to him. He never found no difficulty in getting work. And there was good wages for anyone as had a head on his shoulders and wasn't above putting his and to his hand to anything as come his way. Polly was t- timorous. If she was, if she was him, she'd join the union. The last time there was a strike, she was expecting him to be brought back in the ambulance every time he went out. She turned to Philip. He's that obstinate. There's no doing anything with him. Well, what I say is it's a free country and I won't be dictated to. It's no good saying it's a free country, said Polly. That won't prevent him bashing your head in if they get the chance. When they had finished, Philip passed his pouch over to Herb and they lit their pipes. Then he got up for a call, might be waiting for him at his rooms, and shook hands. He saw that it had given them pleasure that he shared their meal, and they saw that he had thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, goodbye, sir, said Herb, and I hope we shall have a nice doctor next time the missus disgraces herself. Go on with you, Herb, she retorted. How do you know there's going to be a next time? All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. We're meeting new characters that with only less than 10% of the book left. Old Herb and Polly, who abbreviate nearly every word that they say. And it's very difficult to read their dialogue. All right, have your say about that chapter on the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.